And I did learn that the value of commitment. So this man became the most successful personal injury attorney in New York, and he's famous. Now, the top guys, I would say eight out of 10, if you ask them who you work for, it's always him. So they, everybody sort of learned from him how to be so meticulous that no matter what happens, you're going to be prepared. You're going to out know the other side on everything. So it would drive me crazy. I'd say, we already went over this five times. Let's get it out. And it wouldn't happen. We go over, we go over it. And I learned the lesson of like, hey, listen, if we would have sent it out, this would have been different. And that would have affected it. This Welcome to the Land Life Podcast with your host, PJ Riley. What's going on, guys? Welcome to the Land Life Podcast. My name is PJ Riley. Guys, if you're getting value from this podcast, don't forget, like, subscribe leave five stars. Um, if you really, if you got an extra second, maybe leave a nice uh, review, one sentence, two sentences, something, not, nothing crazy. You don't have to get crazy. You know, Matthew was really cool. I liked hearing his story. Great podcast. Boom. Done. <laughs> Easy. Right. Um, guys, uh, at the end of, the, of this podcast, if what Matthew says resonates with you and you want to contact him and you want to kind of keep the conversation going, um, he's going to leave ways you can contact him at the very end. So make sure you stick around for that. Uh, one more thing, I get a lot of, we're, we're land life, where are we at? We got hats everywhere. Got to hats. Um, uh, so we buy and sell land. And so I'm getting a lot of messages, calls, um, texts about the land business, people asking, how do I get involved in it? You know, I want to be involved in the land business, but I don't have all the time in the world. You know, I run a business, I have a job, I have kids, all that kind of stuff. Um, so shoot me a message and I'll let you know how you can get involved with the land business. Uh without having to be involved in the day-to-day um, of the, the business itself. So um, guys, today we've got a different kind of guest. First of all, he's an RTA, so he's a, he's a great person, but um, he, you are a, a personal injury lawyer in New York. He's up on the 11th floor. Um, mm-hmm. Dude's just, just balling out in New York City right now. Matthew Seagal, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. And feel free to call me Matt. Let's keep it a little uh, informal. Maybe Matthew's like my my legal uh, attorney name. And between friends, we'll go with Matt. So feel Matt, free. If, when you get in trouble, do your parents call you yeah. Matthew? Yeah, back in the day, that's what it was for sure. I, I, I feel you there. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it kind of catches up to who you are. Um, what got you started? What why you decided to go the, the you know the the lawyer route and and what got yeah you the for sure route? for sure. First of all, thanks for having me on. Truly appreciate it. You nailed it. Uh, I am a personal injury attorney in New York City. So I represent um, injured people. Typically, uh, they've been injured through the negligence of someone else. So it's not usually an intentional act. It's usually a negligent act. So things, uh, the most common things are like car accidents, uh, construction site accidents, uh, slip or trip and fall accidents, things like that. Um, And I'm 100 percent always representing the injured party. I don't do the defense side at all. I don't represent insurance companies or anything like that. Um, I just personally couldn't really do that. I need to sort of uh, be fighting for the underdog, so to speak. There you go. Um, so I do that. We also do some civil rights cases. Um, so things like police brutality and excessive force, um, 1983 civil rights claims, stuff like that. We do we do a little bit of that. And then as a side, I, I told you about this off air, sort of my pet project is a, um, a wrongful conviction case where uh, we're trying to gain a man his freedom who's been in jail uh, for now, I believe, 32 years, um, which is, it, we could say that number, but I think it's pretty hard to comprehend. Um, even if it was 32 minutes, it would be a lot. So 32 years of his life for a murder that he pretty pretty much clearly did not commit. Um, and so we're trying to get him out and gain his his freedom. So that's pretty much um what we do um i'm located in midtown manhattan um i guess closer to the east side a little bit um but as you can imagine um i'm competing with some of the country's biggest firms and and behemoths uh in terms like that in in terms of just you know getting cases being successful stuff like that um which is where arte has been um sort of a competitive advantage in that regard and finding ways to um, you know, differentiate myself and be successful in a market where, again, there's firms spending millions of dollars a month on on marketing. So right. trying to find my niche, trying to, um, you know, uh, separate myself in unique ways 
uh, which we could talk about. And that's sort of where I am now. So um, the story of how I got there is, I think what you were asking about, and it could be, um, you know, we could be here for, for days talking about that, but I'll give you sort of, sort of a cliff notes. Great lacrosse so, practice. Yeah, exactly. So, so how I got started again, I was a finance major in, in college. Um, and I sort of thought that's where I wanted to be in the finance world, business world, just, you know, trying to make a lot of money. That's basically all I cared about at that point. Um, you know, I was in a fraternity in college. I was the president of my fraternity. So that's sort of where my mind was just having a good time. Having said that, I, you know, I did pretty well in school also, but not, not like what I should have done. Um, but having said that, my father uh, was an attorney. He passed away a couple of years ago. Um, my uncle's an attorney. Thanks. My my cousin attorney. So we have a lot of attorneys in the family. And at that time, my dad said, listen, you could always go in the finance world. You could always go in the business world. But why don't you get your law degree? Um, and you could make a lot of money doing that as well. But you could also help people. So so start off with that and then see what you want to do. Um, so that's what I did. Uh, went to law school. I did not go to one of the top law schools and that sort of feeds into something that I'm, we'll talk about in a little bit that I'm trying to do now, but did not go to one of those top law schools. So it wasn't like when I was graduating law school, which I did just, just, I'm only mentioning this for reference to that. It's not a pat on the, on the back, but I finished at the top of my law school, but it didn't really matter. I was not getting offers to start at $250,000 and stuff like that. So um, I had to kind of fight and scratch to, to get started. Um, and so how I got started was really interesting. So my dad was also a personal injury attorney. My uncle is as well. Um, did not want to go into any of the family businesses because I didn't think that was, um, you know, a good, a good, just a good way to do it. Um, I didn't even speak to my uncle about that, to be perfectly honest. It was just sort of like, let's, let's start my own path. So I'm ready to start a job in like landlord tenant law, which was the only thing I can get a job at to start, which is just brutal because you're in a you're in a overcrowded courthouse, either trying to kick people out of their buildings or trying to get people somehow to stay in their apartments who haven't paid rent. And it's just not a fun place to be. I didn't really want to do that. But, you know, beggars can't be choosers, so to speak. The weekend that I'm supposed to start, I'm clothes shopping to get new new clothes for work and i get a call somehow uh this woman called me her father got my resume and was interested in, in me coming in on the weekend to interview for him didn't know him looked him up he happened to be one of the most famous personal injury attorneys in the country but wow. caveat he's 86 years old and i'd be working from his house um but it was something in the field that i wanted to do and you know i guess I should preface it by, you know, I could have probably found a job in this field, but the starting salaries were so out of whack with what I thought I was worth. And that's a lesson I've learned in Arte. You really should just get your foot in the door. Um, but it, needless to say, I took this interview. And when I get there, he has a, you know, the property is worth tens of millions of dollars, maybe 10 million, something like that. It's a gigantic house on the water on the North Shore. Granted, it hadn't been redone for a long time, but it was an impressive a piece of real estate and he calls me in and he shows me all the books he written and this is one of them actually I'm using it to block the uh to block the air noise so that uh audiences um sorry the audio is better but the trial handbook for New York lawyers so he literally a wrote a huge the, book yeah and he and this is just one of many so he's showing me these he's literally wrote the textbooks he's telling me he's 86 years old when he hired me keep that in mind and his wife's 86 years old so it's just them two and he's saying, I'm going to set you up with your own firm in Empire in the Empire State Building. You're going to have everything. And I'm like, this is amazing. Sign me up. By the way, the starting salary was way more than I was going to make. So I'm like, sign me up. Jackpot. Right. He was partners with F. Lee Bailey, who, if you don't know his name, was um, one of OJ's lawyers on the Dream Team. Very famous lawyer. So, you know, he's throwing, dropping names. And I'm like, all right, let's do this. Uh, he's taught, he told me about some of the cases he's had. Uh, he represented a lot of uh, the victims of the, there was a Pan Am airline bombing over um, Scotland, I believe it was, uh, that was a terrorist bombing. He represented a lot of those people. So he had a lot of famous cases, made a lot of money, and I'm like, let's do this. Um, and so I started working for him. I would reverse commute from the city to Long Island. Most people are going the other way. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'd get picked up by his made in his house from the train station 
she'd bring me home. She'd make me breakfast. She'd make me lunch. It was a surreal sort of weird job. And like most uh, elderly Jewish men from Long Island during the summer, uh, during the winter, his family, him and his wife would go to Florida. So I'd be by myself for half the year in his, you know, in his estate doing the work. Now, what was the work? So that's, that's, now let's move the story along a little bit. I'm sort of telling the long story. You can feel free to move me along if you want. This is but super interesting. Of, this is like an HBO special. Yeah, it's interesting because it's not the common way uh, that people start. People start, yeah, yeah. you know, at a law firm. They get, you know, overwhelmed with work. They hate it or they try to move firms. They try to work their way up, which eventually happened to me. But but it, it was unique because here's what happened. My two clients at that firm were my boss and my boss. So we did not work. He was shutting down his firm. We, I didn't know this. We did not work on any injury cases, oh. aside from his own malpractice case where he was the victim of, uh, of some mal medical malpractice. And then he was breaking up with his partner. So my job was to represent him in that breakup. So every day we worked on these two cases and we worked on them like they were the only cases in the world, which to us they were. But um, it was it was really intense because like a letter that would take me an hour to send out. I'm not there's no hyperbole. It would take us a week to send out. So a, a paragraph, he'd go over every line, every sentence, every word and just revise it over and over again. And it would drive oh. me nuts. But I sort of learned from him the value of really knowing what you're saying and meaning what you're saying. And so we would get, we would look over his medical records and every page would be dissected. Every letter, every word, every symbol the doctor made, we needed to know exactly what it meant. So I did not learn from him how to handle personal injury cases. I did not learn most of the things that I learned now, but I did learn the value of preparation. And I did learn that the value of commitment. So this man became the most successful personal injury attorney in New York, and he's famous. Now, the top guys, I would say eight out of 10, if you ask them who you work for, it's always him. So they, everybody sort of learned from him how to be so meticulous that no matter what happens, you're going to be prepared. You're going to out know the other side on everything. So it would drive me crazy. I'd say, we already went over this five times. Let's get it out. And it wouldn't happen. We go over, we go over it. And I learned the lesson of like, hey, listen, if we would have sent it out, this would have been different and that would have affected it this, how, this way. So flash forward a couple of years, we send, we do the break uh, breakup of his firm. His case gets settled for a lot of money. And now I'm sort of thinking, all right, Matt, like you got to move this along because you're not, I'm not in court. I'm seeing people who graduated after me sort of surpass me. I did make a lot of connections because <laughs> it's funny. Uh, there's a, a very, um, the best organization we have in New York is called the New York State Trial Lawyers Association. And so we do lobbying and we do, uh, we help each other through continuing legal education, stuff like that. And he was the first president ever of that organization. Now, I don't even know what they're up to, but he was number one. So when they have the, the ceremony every year, which was like his Super Bowl, he'd be in the top left corner of multiple rows because he was the first president. So I mentioned that only to say that what I also didn't realize is that I was making high level connections, this former past president, this former past president. So I'm meeting as we go, people are coming to his house because he was highly respected just to talk about things. So I'm meeting a lot of these past presidents and highly successful attorneys, which later on really uh, proved to be fruitful for me. So those are the two things I took away from this, the connections and just learning how to network with high level people and the value of over-preparing. And although I didn't get the legal experience that I wanted and I thought I was gonna get, I didn't get the you know, sick office in the Empire State Building. We moved out of that office within the first three months and I was literally doing the moving. We didn't hire a moving person. I had things on my back, just baking, breaking my back doing all this moving. You know, I did a lot of things that I didn't think I was gonna be doing. So needless to say, I then told them I had to leave. I got hired by a firm who, was also famous for overpaying. That's how they get people in the door. But the boss is a stereotypical psychopath who just berates his employees, um, berates paralegals for no reason. He didn't do that to me, but I knew sort of my time was coming. So after about six months, I'm in court. I'm running around because we're understaffed doing like five different things. 
an attorney said to me, hey, are you working for so-and-so guy? I can tell by the way you're sweating. He goes, if you ever want to work for a real firm, come to me. So after six months, I then moved to this firm. This firm is where I really learned how to be a lawyer. You need, you know, one thing that I really plan on talking about here towards the end, but you know, as well as I do, you need coaches. You need to be part of an organization like Arate, where people are trying to help each other and level up. You need to learn from someone who's done it before so that you don't need to learn the hard way and you could compress 10 years into two or whatever it is. So that's where I really learned um, how to be a lawyer. I learned what to do, what not to do. These guys were really great in teaching me. But the one thing I wasn't getting was trial experience. I knew I wanted to be a trial lawyer. You know, most people in my field, they want to hide behind desks. They want to push papers, but it takes balls. It takes some guts to go in front of a jury and argue a case. And the spotlight's on you. A judge is on you. uh, The jury is watching you. There's people in the audience. It's it's nerve-wracking. But I knew that's what I wanted to do because that's what made me want to do this. So why? You know, my friends and I, were all love sports, and we just argue sports nonstop. (laughs) And so... For whatever reason, all my friends are Met fans, and I'm a, a diehard Yankee fan. And so every you know pregame that we would have in law school, we'd just be fighting with each other. And I try to make my point about you know the Yankees, why they're better than the Mets, which everyone knows they are. Uh, and then the next week, we'd have the same argument. I'm like, no, that's not what happened. Blah 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 blah. So I'd like, I just love arguing, right? I love um, trying to you know show my point of view, but also helping someone along the way. So, you know, the, the sports argument is is bullshit, right? But when I'm trying to fight for someone who's been wronged and they're injured, you know, now I could kind of put my talents to good use. So the one thing that this firm, although they taught me everything, what they weren't doing was let me do trials. So they were a small firm and the head partner, he'd be doing all the trials. And I'd say, I want to do it. I want to do them. And I just couldn't crack into that. So one day, again, in court, a good friend of mine said, hey, listen, we're looking for a trial lawyer. Come over to us and do your trials. So the guy who ran that firm was a little bit, I don't know, I want to call him shady. And people said, good luck with that. But I went over. Um, again, he 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 paid well. Um, but the main thing is I was able to do trials. So I started to do trials. I started to get comfortable, right? All right, now here's where the story gets good. And I that was a, a big setup. So one day, about maybe two or three years after I've started working at this firm, we come into work. And most firms get the New York Law Journal delivered. Someone says to me, I come back from court, did you see the cover of the New York Law Journal? I said, no. Pulls it open. Our boss, his license was suspended. It's on the cover of the New York Law Journal. So everyone's freaking out. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? Nobody knows. And like I said, this guy was, you know, known to be not, you know, it's just a little bit shady in terms of, we didn't think anything underhand or, or improper was going on, but he was, um, you know, you never really knew what he was saying. Like it was a little bit of uh, not a bait and switch, but he would say one thing and you'd never see the proof was in the pudding. So that happened. And of course he's saying, oh, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. So there was about five other associate attorneys. And I said, listen, we need to have a meeting to find out what's going on. And he said, sure, come on. And I said, no, 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 not with you, with your attorney. So we can know what's actually happening. So his attorney comes in and we have a meeting just with the associate lawyers in the conference room. And his attorney says, listen, his license has been suspended. We're going to fight it. But for now, he cannot practice law. So we have, and he was a high volume practice. Another firm like the psychopath who yelled at everyone where I really <laughs> learned, where I really learned what not to do. Right. So there's value in what ha- in like the other firm teaching me how to practice. There's a lot of value in that, but there's also a lot of value in seeing what not to do. So one thing this guy said was, listen, all of these cases, his attorney said, all these cases need to find a new home because he can't practice law and he's 100% the owner of this firm. By the way, a lot of other firms started this way. So now in my head, backtrack to what I was mentioning to you before, I'm in Arte now for about a year when it first started. I have this entrepreneurial bug. I was one of the kids that everyone on these podcasts says I was flipping airheads in middle school you know, my mom would buy them from, from Costco and I try to flip them, make a buck. Yep. So I have this entrepreneurial spirit. I didn't go to one of the top law schools, so I'm not making that money. I'm pissed I'm not making that money because I think I'm just as talented as all of them. Um, I'm wondering what the hell can I do to make that money? And I'm reaching out to my friends already before this happened who are lawyers who have firms or 
or work for firms that don't have personal injury aspects, uh, uh, personal injury like uh, practices that I said, hey, maybe I can be that guy at your firm. Problem mm -hmm. is, you, I don't have cases to start with. So in my, in my business, you can sign up a case today. You don't get paid for that for three years. So what am I going to do for the next three years while I'm signing up cases? Because it has to go through litigation and stuff like that. Granted, there are cases where you can settle quickly, but that's not how I practice. I always want to get maximum value and maximum justice for my clients. So I'm looking around and I'm thinking, I'm the only trial attorney. So I'm the only one who can really take a case and, and uh, prosecute it till the end. On top of that, I think I'm the only one with the entrepreneurial balls to do anything. So a couple of days go by and, this, and he's not telling his clients that his license was suspended and they need to find new lawyers. A week go by, now I'm getting pissed because this, this is not proper. Because I'd want to know immediately if I was, if I was a, um, a, a client like this. So I then hire my own ethics counsel because the last thing I want to do is do anything improper. And the ethics counsel says, listen, these clients need to know that they need to find new attorneys. Don't say to them, come with me, because we don't want to, we don't want to cross that barrier of your, your prior boss saying that you stole cases, which wouldn't be the case anyway. So mm -hmm. one by one, I'd say, hey, listen, you need to find a new attorney because this happened. And one by one, they'd say, it's funny because the, the customer service that I provided or I tried to provide in the long run, because it's a long game, as we've learned, came back to help me. Because one by one, they said, Matt, you're the only person who ever calls me back. You're the only person who ever tells me what's going on in my case. We want to stick with you. So then I'm thinking, shit, this is what I've been waiting for. This is the chance. This is my opportunity. I have to be ready to strike when the opportunity presents itself, yeah. right? Because, you know, luck is, you know, when preparation meets opportunity. So this is it. And I'm listening to the podcast that we listen to, all the personal yeah. development that says that. You got to be ready to strike. And I'm like, fuck, this is it. I got to strike here. So all those clients that told me that they wanted to come with me, I, I kind of looked and see, saw who were, which are the most valuable cases that I could start with. And I, I, one by one, I took subways, I took buses into the heart of Brooklyn, into the heart of the Bronx, into the heart of Queens. I'm wearing a suit. This is not areas where you see someone looking like me <laughs> walking around and stuff, but I didn't care. I was going to do whatever I had to do. One by one, we signed them up. And then I had to sort of say, well, where, where's my office going to be? What, what am I going to do for equipment? What the hell am I going to do? And I started going through my resources and I started to say, all right, well, here's someone I can get creative with. I don't have the funds right now to pay New York City rents, but we could strike some sort of a deal where it could be beneficial for all of us. And that's what I did. And that was at the end of 2018. Um, we started with those cases. Um, we just settled one for $5 million where the offer in that at the old firm was for $13,500. This, it probably would have gotten settled five, six figures, but we worked on it for five years straight every week and we just settled it for 5 million. So that's the most recent one, but we've had a lot of success in that five years. Um, we had a great office now, as you can see, great views. We feel professional coming to work. I have an associate working for me now. So that's basically the origin of how Siegel Law Firm got started. Um, and you know, I tell that story in a long form like that. Um, just if anyone stuck with me on that, because <laughs> I think it's really important for a couple of reasons. One, you know, if you're first starting out, you know, it's okay to not get that $250,000 a year job. There's so much value in the intangible things you learn, how to be overprepared, you know, how to network, you know, being hungry scratching and clawing for for cases and trying to find out how do I get the cases that the big firms are missing out on um how do I provide the best customer service that's basically how I differentiate myself we can get into that also I don't want to just keep talking but you know that's basically how I said I had that Jerry Maguire moment where if you look at my website you know my whole thing is that in these firms that I've worked at before, you're just a file. You're just a file. They're going to sign you up. But after that, you're never going to speak to an attorney again until he wants to contact you because something's needed, right? So um, how do you provide that customer service? So all my clients have my cell phone. We're texting. I would say, honestly, 100% of my clients, when the case is done, they're going to say, I got the best value I could have for my case and that Matt kept me informed the whole time. So that's basically what I learned. So if, if you're listening out there, and you're not 
at one of these top law schools or top business schools and you're not getting these offers, I'm going to tell you that's a freaking blessing because what's going to happen is you're going to, it's going to take you the long road, but you're going to find out the ways to differentiate yourself where all these other people are just punching the clock every day, so to speak, just going through the motions. Yeah, they're going to keep getting raises. They're going to make a lot of money. But on the back end, you're going to find out ways to make a lot more money by being creative and, and starting your own business. So that's basically the story. Those are the, uh, are the main lessons. And, uh, you know, we could, we could go from there. I don't want to. Yeah. Yeah. Talk no, time. that was great, man. That, that, that's like, yeah. that's like a, a book in itself. It's either has to be a TV show or a book, something like that. You gotta get <laughs> I mean, this into some sort of, there were so many random things. Like his maid was like cooking me lamb chops at lunch, which I love. And it's like, I'm not just going to like this local salad place. I'm being served lamb chops at lunch on a state in Long Island looking over the city. I'm like, it's like, what, what is happening here? Yeah. Uh, it was so surreal. My, you know, it was crazy what was going on, but Again, it it really is an interesting story, but hopefully it has a, a pretty big ending because we're I think we're just at the beginning, to be honest. Yeah, that's awesome, man. So what, what I thought was really interesting too with, with the 86-year-old person, your 86-year-old boss, yeah. that when he taught you preparation with those yeah. letters, and you're always yeah. correcting things, always making changes, right? Um, you took that with you until now, right? Yeah. So now you can jump into a situation. You were saying you were the only uh, trial at attorney, right? And, and but, but it takes balls to get up there and do that, right? A lot of guys have 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 balls and they're they're willing to talk in front of people. However, not a lot of those guys come prepared as well. Hundred percent, right? 100%. So during the course of that time, you were building preparation to match your tenacity. Yeah, to, all to, of these to, little like, things. Your own. Yeah, all of these little things that you don't realize at the time. You're you're pissed that you know that you're commuting to work or you're not making the salary you want, but all these little things are worth more than another five grand in salary or stuff like that. And so, yeah, when I go to court, um, I, I would, on, when I go to trial, not court, uh, cause you go to court for a couple different things, but actually when I go to court on, on arguing motions or mainly trials, the feedback I get every time from the judges, I've never seen it. And I don't mean to, you know, break down in hyperbole, but they really say this. I haven't seen a lawyer like you, your age, come this prepared because I sort of say, listen, what happens if this happens and what happens if this happens? And so every contingency yeah. is planned upon. And my business model also feeds that because I don't sign up every case that I can get and just try to sell it on the cheap. We sign up cases that we believe in that we, that we want to help the client in, but because we have that lower amount of cases, I can over-prepare. I have the time to over-prepare and get to know the clients. And you know what the crazy thing is? You get that money on the back end because when I overprepare and I know my client's story more than just having a phone call with them right before trial, I then can passionately con can convey that to the jury and that leads them to give us more money because they know what happened to my client. So all of these little things like, you know, over and I, I really can't stress to you the level of overpreparedness. And he was famous for that. Everyone that's ever worked for him knows that uh, because if he doesn't understand one little thing, we may spend a month trying to figure that out. And you may think, and oftentimes it probably is overkill, but for the few times that it's not overkill, it's going to pay off in spades. So you're yeah. totally right. That, that over-preparedness, when that coupled with the balls to do the trials, um, you know, you're going to crush it because that's why I win my trials. I'm, I'm in there against people who are just reading the files that week for the most part. And I know yeah. You know, when they're asking me certain questions, hey, what happened here? I'm like, oh, you're dead because I'm just going to crush you because you don't really know the facts and and the important issues as well as I do. Yeah. So you're basically coming in prepared for battle, right? Yes. So you're going 100%. in facing facing this this obstacle and you are preparing for a possible attack from this side, a possible attack from this side. So you have all the angles kind of totally. uh, uh, taken totally. care of. Now, and you can never prepare for, for them all either. Something new is always going to happen that you didn't prepare for. But that level of preparedness, knowing all the facts, gives you an increased ability to think on your feet. Absolutely. Because you're already into it. You already know what the client's thinking. You already know what their arguments are. If you don't know all that stuff and something happens that you're not prepared for, there's going to be that moment of, uh... And, yeah, you're, and you're not able to pivot. And you're not able to pivot whatsoever. So yeah. that's another benefit to just being overprepared. Okay, I think we already answered the question, but what sets you apart? Yeah, so again, thank you for, for that question because... You know, again, I, I once put up a post on social media because everyone's seen Jerry Maguire, I think, around yeah. our age. I um, love that, that movie. That's that is one of my of favorite a, movies yeah. of all time. 
part of the reason why I wanted to be a lawyer is that I wanted to be a sports agent or, or entertainment lawyer, which I think everyone did. And then throughout law school, I'm sending my applications. Everyone's like, it's not what you think. It's the same as, you know, contract law. Yeah, it's cool. Like it's, you know, um, you know, athletes are your clients, but it's not, it's not what Jerry Maguire is. Uh, granted, I'm sure I probably would have loved it anyway. But that moment in the beginning where he's writing that mission statement that he ultimately gets fired for, where it's less clients, uh, more client interaction, that that's that's me. Because again, I saw at, at two firms specifically just filling up, filling up the, the file shelves with cases. And a client, I'd finally speak to them and said, why don't you call me back? And I said, I didn't even get the message. So it was just zero, zero um, effort into client, um, client services. And just, you know, when you're in an injury case, uh, when you're the plaintiff, a lot of times you can't work, you can't pay your bills, you're injured, you can't do the things you love to do. And that's insane. That's, that's, you're in the worst part of your life. So you then find that someone recommends you a lawyer, you Google it. And by the, by the unluck of the draw, you end up at what's called a mill where, you know, you're promised these things and, and your case sits on a shelf and you're not getting any feedback. And I knew, listen, if I could separate, if I could separate myself, if I could treat my clients, like they're my mom, there's going to be value to that. Maybe not right away, but once they start sharing their stories about how I treated them, that's how I'm going to really grow my practice. And that's what happened. So um, that's how we separate ourselves. Again, I will, I will call, uh, text my clients. I was texting someone at 10 PM last night. I don't really care. I want to make sure that they know that we're there for them. Obviously, you know, if I'm with my family, I want to really create that separation. If I can, you know, if I can, uh, if it's not urgent or things like that, but we go over the top um, in sort of trying to make sure our clients know that they don't have to reach out to us. We're going to reach out to them. We're going to update them. We're going to provide them with guidance. We're going to, you know, try to get them all of the damages that they're entitled to, not just the pain and suffering, but if they lost work, we're going to get them the lost wages. They're yeah. out of pocket for medical bills. We're going to make the effort to do that. A lot of times it's extra work for us. A lot of times it's outside the scope of our retainer agreement, which outlines what we're going to do, but that's what you have to do. And, you know, looking at your RTA hat, the, one of the first things we did was establish our core values that you don't see any law firm doing that. That's up on right. our website. You know, we stand by our core values. Yeah. The first time uh, I hired an intern, I printed out the core values and I said, here, study these. These are, you know, these are what, what we care about. So, you know, we're trying to, and this is something Andy talks about, but we're not just trying to win. We're trying to dominate. We're trying to do everything yeah. ethically. We're trying to make sure judges uh, opposing law firms are going to say, we like dealing with Matt. We know when Matt, when Siegel Law Firm is on the case, this is going to be a legit case. He's going to be ready to fight. And so we better take this seriously, maybe try to resolve it now as opposed to letting him, um, you know, really get his hands on it. Um, and so that is that that's paid off. So that's really what separates us. You're seeing a lot of client, a lot of firms now try to talk about that. But, you know, to me, the proof is in the pudding. And so when my clients really share their stories um, and we have some really up like the 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 client we just got $5 million for, he's going to share his story. I can only imagine what he's going to say, but I think that's going to help us a lot. So, so that's really the separator. So one thing, I, I have a question. When, you go, when you're not in law, like you're the yeah. victim here, right? Yeah. You're a, this is such a nerve wracking experience. Like you don't know what you don't know, right? Yeah. So you fall, you get, or I don't know, you get hurt in an accident. You know, you work for this giant company this huge company that's owned by a bigger company that's owned by a bigger company. Right. Yep. You're like, all right, I can file this claim, but it, when, when I get into court, it's so intimidating. How are you able to, um, I guess, build relationships with these, these cust these, these clients of yours. Yeah. Um, when I'm sure they're terrified of dealing yeah. with their giant opponent and they're probably going to lose their job. Um, I would imagine. So how do you, how are you helping these guys? How are you talking? Yeah. These guys? yeah. So, um, it's a great question. Um, and it's funny because I'm dealing with an issue with regard to the medical insurance payments on a client who um, who was employed by a big company and they made the payments and they're entitled to it back. But so we're trying to work that out now. But um, it's a good question because, you know, the bottom line is what I tell them is like, this is what I do. This is this is we're we're specialized in this. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a famous saying. Um, the person that represents themselves has a fool for, for a client because you're not a lawyer. You don't, you know, it's, it's very easy to say, 
um, you know, hey, I'm hurt. It's his fault. I should, I should be able to get all this money back, right? But you're not trained and you don't really know the the letters to write, you know, the the deadlines that you have to comply by, anything like that. So the first yeah. thing I say is listen, all you want, all you have to worry about is your medical treatment and feeling better. I'm not gonna get in the way of that. If you have if you want to ask me for my opinion or how it could affect your case, by all means, ask me and I will give you my feedback on that. But I will never tell you to get a surgery or, you know, if it's just to benefit the case. I want you to just focus on working with your doctors on getting yourself healthy. Yeah. The rest of it, that's what I'm here for. You know, so dealing with your employer, um, dealing with getting you paid, lost earnings, dealing with, um, you know, filing a claim, because you're right. Most of the times we're dealing with the giant insurance companies who don't give a shit about you at all, even your own insurance company. So okay. when you get hit by a car that doesn't have insurance or has very minimal insurance, and you want to then turn to your own insurance company, which is part of the policy that you pay for, they <laughs> are still going to try to shut you down, yeah. which is kind of crazy. It's like, you're my insurance company. I pay you for this. And you're still trying to tell me that my claim is bullshit or, or whatever yeah. it is. So that's really what I do from the get-go. And I say, listen, I will always be here to answer your questions. In fact, I'm going to call you proactively to see if you have any questions. But don't worry about any of that stuff. We're going to keep you informed. We're going to make sure you know what's going on. Just worry about your medical treatment. Let me do the rest. And if you have a family member that you authorize me to speak to, your husband, your mother, your father, by all means, I'll explain it to them too. So I think just by that um, conversation at front, that takes a lot of the weight off their shoulders. They don't think that they need to do anything else other than go to the doctor, work on getting themselves feeling better, go to therapy, and then they have that trust in me from the beginning. Okay, gotcha. That's perfect. Yeah, it, it's it's got to be incredibly intimidating when you when you have no idea what you're talking about, and you you, you can't even really convey the in, information to your to you your attorney. Yeah. You have to just trust that you know what to do. When the situation arises, yeah, right? and and there, and there's a lot of unknowns. A lot of yeah. times, there's a lot of variables, and the question I inevitably inevitably get from every client is, "How much is this worth? What am I gonna, you know, what's yeah. this case gonna resolve for?" Problem with that is, there's a million variables. There's so many different things that can go awry. So, you know, um, we don't really answer that question. We could say, "Listen, you know, here's a general range of what we sell these types of cases for." But having said that, you know. Let's disregard that. All our job is, is to max out the value of your case. Yeah. And so how do we do that? And we get to work doing that. How are you, how often do you turn away, I guess, maybe claims that maybe weren't, weren't your level of uh, legitimacy? Right. So, so that is a, that's the great question. And my, you know, new year's resolution this year was to say no more yeah. because I really want to focus on, I don't want to say higher level cases, but uh, cases where the client is really, really suffering, uh, albeit financially or, um, or, or medically. But then there's the flip side to that, which is what I'm telling you how I get most of my cases, which is by word of mouth. So when I turn someone away, then I'm, I, I'm theoretically not just turning them away, but also anyone that they might um, you know, speak highly of me of who might have a case. Sure. So, so we just basically um, treat it as, as sort of a scaling issue. So as long as we can provide the customer service that I promise with my core values and what's on my website and all that, everything that I just said, as long as we can still do that, I will still take on a case that still might be lesser value because this client needs help. And by over delivering to them, they're going to help me grow my business also. Um, but needless to say, it has to have merit. It has to be a, a legitimate yeah. case. I will never take a case where, um, not where I can't win because I've had a lot of success where we've won cases where other lawyers have said, this is an unwinnable case, but a case where it wouldn't make sense to take that risk. So that's sure. basically it. We go through an evaluation process. Hey, this is a client that has a viable case. It's, it's valid. It's a, it's a client that needs our help. You know, let's take it on. Okay, great. We have X amount of resources. We want, we want to help the, the people that need it most. Exactly. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. Now, here's the one I, I really got to know about this. 32 yeah. years behind bars. Yeah. Like you said before, when you first started, 32 years is, just think of the last 32 years, what's happened. I mean, yeah, the internet became a thing. It's, it's crazy. He doesn't know how to use a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. He has to figure it out. It's terrifying yeah. to come out into the yeah. world. 
How yeah. did you figure this out? How did you find it, the case? Yeah. Um, talk us through that, man. Yeah, so it's a good question. So um, one of the cases that I took on when I left that firm I mentioned was a police brutality case um, of a gentleman who had recently got out of prison, but for no reason, police saw him um, and they roughed him up. Um, and it was on video. By the way, caveat to that, because I don't want to come off like I'm any um, anti-police or anything like that. I love mm. the police. I'm, I'm showing I, you know, I, I have police officer clients as well. Um, having said that, like any field, there's a few bad seeds. Absolutely. And sometimes we need to protect other people's civil rights to make sure, you know, the bad seeds and the issues that they uh, have created are dealt with. So I just like to make that caveat because I'm Absolutely. not- 99% of cops are good. But if you've seen videos like the Memphis Six, yeah. I'm pretty sure they were called, you know yeah. some aren't so hot. 100%. So I, I just, I like to make that caveat. So going back to this excessive force case, it was on video. And I talk a lot about that where video is, you know, video on the phone now is is such a valuable tool because it's easy to deny something when it's not on video. But when it's on video, you can't really deny it. So mm. needless to say, they were trying to settle that case on the cheap, but I said, I'll, I'll take it to trial. So the eve, actually, we started jury selection. And when jury selection happened, the city called me up and they said, all right, we got to resolve this case. So I got this gentleman a very good settlement. He loved me, right? So now he's speaking highly of me to other people. One yeah. of the persons that he spoke to was this gentleman in prison um, who had been serving at that point 28 years in jail uh, for, for a murder that he said he didn't commit. Now, obviously, most lawyers are going to say everybody in jail says that they didn't do it. Everyone in prison says it wasn't them. So how do you weed that out? And obviously, since I took this case on, I get a lot of mail with, with stories where I believe them. I don't think they did it because, um, you know, of the way that they're talking. Now, I'm sure I'm being fooled maybe on, on a couple of them, mm -hmm. but I don't really have the time to deal with all of them. And I'll try to help them find another lawyer. I just focus on this one case that we took on. And so that's how I got it, just word of mouth. And he sent me um, a letter and some exhibits that he had gotten. And I'm like, man, like, I really believe this guy. Um, Making a Murderer, I don't know if you watched that on Netflix, had come out. Uh, there's a lot of Netflix documentaries about these types of stories. And I thought, all right, listen, let me try to use my skills for good here. Looking back on it, it was extremely naive of me because I had just started my firm. Um, these cases cost a lot of money. In fact, I'm sending my investigator out tomorrow to go to talk to the same witness for the fourth time. I have to fly him out, uh, rental car, hotel, his time. So it's expensive. And I, it's not like this case is, any case is gonna settle soon to reimburse that. So I was naive on that because also you can believe someone that they're innocent. You can have in, uh, witnesses like the gentleman that we're talking to this weekend who are recanting their story. And that's still not enough. There's a lot of legal uh, loopholes, not loop, loopholes, legal elements that you have to prove in order to get this case heard again. So it can't even be the same things that you talked about. Sometimes you have to have newly discovered evidence, which is what we're out there trying to do. So the judge, the city, everybody could really know that he's innocent. But if you can't satisfy the legal requirements, you can't even get the case in a position to get the conviction overturned. Yeah. So I was naive to that. I thought, hey, listen, you know, like some of my, you know, injury cases, I'll get the police report. We'll talk to a couple of witnesses. We'll see that, you know, the other guy's at fault and they have to settle. That's not the case here, which I was naive to. But I'm happy I was naive because I'm still sticking into it uh, yeah. or sticking with it. So now it's all these years later and it, it takes so long. So it's this is where my core values have a hard time with the reality because I want to try to provide this guy the best service possible. But and, and knowing where he's been for 30 years. But things take time, especially in this field. So documents that we've just sent, uh, we sent requests to the city of New York multiple times and the DA's office for documents, rejected, rejected, rejected. For whatever reason, for a six month period, a legal uh, loophole was created where they had to send me this. So we just got, after four years, a thousand pages of new evidence. Wow. I don't think it's all new evidence, but no, we've now contacted new new witnesses. So we hope that we're in a position within the next year or two um, to put this all together, to present it to the city and say, what do you guys want to do? This guy clearly did not do it. 
Um, the evidence is clear. You know, you can stand behind your old conviction and say, you know, um, you know, he was convicted by a jury of his peers then. But the fact of the matter is, this guy was 18 when he went away. All oh, the witnesses God. that put him on, all the witnesses that put him on were 17 years old. They all got pressured by the DA's office to make some, they all got a deal to make some sort of deal yeah. to get some sort of benefit to say that my client was the guy, right? And so because they had all these guys, um, you know, pointing the finger at him, it was sort of an easy conviction, even though it wasn't. Yeah. And, they're, and they're trying to stand by that. But now when a jury sees that, wait a minute, these kids were 17, 17. Like that's another thing. Think about what you were doing when you were 17 years old. Yeah. So most most likely you were not in an interrogation room with the lights on you saying, if you say it's this guy, we're going to give your 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 mom a free apartment uh, or a new apartment for the next couple of years, which is what happened. No um, so kidding. now all this is, yeah, all this is coming to light. So now we got to put this together. And I daydream every day about walking out of this prison with my guy after 32 years, because yeah. keep in mind also, he had, he's had, it's not like he sat there for 32 years and didn't have a lawyer and said, all right, oh my God, Matt Siegel just got this guy a great settlement. Let me reach out to him. He's had some other lawyers who have said, uh, who have looked at it and said, ah, it's not so easy. I'm not going to do it. Oh, wow. But again, that naive, that night being naive kind of helped me say, all right, it might not be easy. Let's see what we could do. And now, lo and behold, we're getting some new evidence that might make it easier. So I don't know if we'll ultimately be successful. I think we should be. I think if if the city did what's right, they should let this guy out uh, because, you know, some of the evidence is crazy. Like the car that they said he did the shooting in, we have proof was in another state impounded when it happened. So if they're going to do the right thing, effort was given when this first guy, when this yeah. guy was first convicted. Great question. Not great effort, not great effort. And yeah. so we have to toe the line of, um, you know, alleging ineffective assistance of counsel and sort of kind of using what he did do. So uh, it's crazy. It's crazy. And, and the last thing I'll say about it is in this time of, um, you know, 30 years ago, early 1990s, it was rampant in this section of Brooklyn to wrongfully convict african-american men for these types of crimes you're seeing over and over again people are getting out for wrongfully convicted uh wrongfully convicted murders um typically sometimes they involve two detectives that were known to be like you know mafia cops they're called or whatever who are doing you know improper stuff this doesn't involve them so to speak but it involves a lot of the same district attorneys and stuff so it was it's known that it was rampant in that time period in this district fitting this crime so hopefully we can get everything together and uh, we can get them out. It's going to be unbelievable. Dude, that's such a cool story, man. Yeah. It's like um, one of your first, it's like you're a, a boxer. One of your first fights, you decided to take on Mike Tyson. Right. And and, you know? and it's tough. It's tough just because of the defendant, the city of New yeah. York, uh, but also um, the laws that restrict what you can and cannot do and what, what, what threshold needs to be proven. And if you watch Making a Murder for everyone that does, that's what they're dealing with now all these years later. Uh, and I'm not saying whether or not he's he's guilty or not, but um, you know, it's just gathering new evidence to present it again, to even have the argument. So uh, it's crazy, but hopefully we can get him out. Yeah, yeah, that's so awesome, man. You, you, but, but, but I mean, and going back to you personally though, I mean, I, I'm, I think you put yourself in a position to succeed. Whereas- yeah. You could have easily been like, nope, not my problem. Um, yeah. That's way too hard, way above my pay grade. Um, but you put yourself in a position to where if this does work out yeah, and all the pieces do fall into place and you do get the right evidence and this does get turned in at the right time and everything works. Yeah. Um, dude, you did something big. Yeah. Like something yeah. And, and it's not, and it's not that somebody's going to get a check for, you know, 150,000, it's oh, that a man is going to gain his freedom after 30 plus years, which again, yeah. uh, you know, I, I always think, how would I talk to a jury about this? And I just can't, it's impossible to comprehend. You know, I, I kind of go back like I did. So it's like, imagine 32 seconds, imagine 32 minutes in a prison, imagine 32 months yeah, or weeks or days, yeah. then go to years, year after year. Imagine everything that's happened, like the technology. That's a great yeah. way to put it. You know, like this wasn't even close to coming, you know, it was yeah know to coming out so um yeah so hopefully we can get him out but um one thing i will say about that also is that when i took this case on i'd never done any of this you know any wrongful conviction case but mm -hmm. what i did do is found a top uh, investigator found a mentor um taught i've been 
talking to some of the top attorneys in the state, in the country about what they think I should do. So, uh, you know, this goes also to one of the number one lessons in starting my firm and, and what I you know want to talk to uh, younger attorneys or people who are not or younger business, um, you know, business professionals or entrepreneurs is that, you know, there's a lot of value into not knowing a lot of things. And into knowing what you don't know, because what yeah. you do then is you you form a team of experts. So instead of me, let's say I, I somewhat knew it and I thought to myself, I can get this done, um, you know, because I somewhat know it. Instead, I'm saying I don't know it. I'll learn what I need to know. But let me let me bring on the experts on it, because the pie will be big enough where it'll be. You know, if I have a lesser piece than the whole pie, it's still going to be a much bigger pie than if I tried to keep it all for myself and, and got a much worse result. Absolutely. So, you know, so yeah. the number one thing, what I tell young entrepreneurs is the confidence is not the confidence that you need to get started, to start your own firm, to start your own business is not that I know everything that I need to know. The confidence is that I'm confident in myself that I'll be able to figure out what I need to know along the way. Yeah. And that's such a major difference. And thank God I knew that or somewhat had that instinct when I started my firm, because that was my first thought. It's like, holy shit, I can't compete with these New York City lawyers that have been doing it for 40 years that know everything. Yeah. But what I what I realized is that, you know, a rising tide lifts all ships. So they were more than willing to help me out because they know there's they're going to get their cases. Everyone's going to get their cases. Someone else is going to get his. Why not help me, you know, fill in the blanks of what I didn't know and that just helped me become a better lawyer. And now I'm helping younger, younger attorneys do the same. That's awesome. Uh, so, and, and it's all about preparation. You, you were, you were, yeah. um, you, you prepared, you yeah. absolutely prepared. You showed up, you built a team, you yep. learned all these things from this, from, you know, previous experiences and, and you built a team. So how, how, um, how are you teaching younger attorneys right now? Is it in the office or are you teaching them like uh, somewhere else? Yeah. So I appreciate you asking. And, and, you know, we didn't even talk about this and I haven't yeah. really shared it with anyone, but, so I've had interns um, and, you know, because of Andy and Ed and Arate and everything like that, even before that, what the personal development world has done for me and specifically, you know, it really goes hand in hand a lot with entrepreneurship and personal development. As you know, you know, a lot of the great uh, guys out there are, are, you know, kind of do both. But, you know, that gave me the mindset for when this opportunity came to me, I was ready to pounce and go from there. And yeah. I was ready to identify the one skill, which was being a trial lawyer that could separate me from the rest of the pack, which is, I, you know, I'm really um, passionate about in any field you are to try to identify what is the one skill that most people in your field are afraid to do. But if you do it, you're going to differentiate yourself. Um, what's that one that, skill? So, so those two kind of thing, those two things um, kind of gave me a passion for, you know, this personal development world that we're in because you know, your mindset is everything, right? It's everything. And so when I have interns come in, the first thing I do is I give them a copy of The Magic of Thinking Big, uh, that book, uh, maybe a couple other books. And I say, listen, you know, I'm going to teach you um, how to do the law that I do. But, you know, we'll, we'll talk about depositions, we'll talk about pleadings and motions and all that stuff. And all of that is critical, right? But unless you have the mindset to succeed, unless you're thinking big, you know, you're going to be very limited the whole time. So that's what I do. I work with um, any, any of my interns, other people have, and my intern now has become my, my associate. Um, <laughs> and, and we still work nice. on all those things. You know, fitness is a big thing um, that I think is important. Um, so I've worked, um, I try to mentor people. I work with a, um, a organization in Brooklyn who teaches younger, young kids to try to you know, have some sort of skills that they don't get because they're underprivileged. Sure. Um, but what I've started to start, what I'm going to be starting um, within the next, I hope, week or two or a couple weeks or a month or wherever, whenever it's ready, is a coaching program of my own. Um, very basic, nothing crazy, where I'm going to work with younger lawyers, uh, younger entrepreneurs, um, any, even, you don't even have to be younger, just be, uh, you know, <laughs> earlier on in your journey than me, so to speak. And I want to help you get to where I've been. And I'm very clear where I am, uh, get to where I am, but where I am is nowhere near where I want to go, Yeah, you know, for sure. But there's things along the way, like I said, where you could compress 10 years into 10 weeks or 10 days. So I want to share with them my skills. And I, I have a passion uh, for, for coaching is what I've learned. You know, if I could really, um, 
you know, hit it big one day and maybe scale back a little bit. I'd love to coach some high school basketball too. I just love, love coaching and getting people better, better, but I really want to start because, you know, if I knew what I know now, when I started my firm, then I could have been where I am now a couple of years ago. And so that's what I want to do. I want to really focus on, you know, working on your mindset, working on your fitness and working on your business skills. Um, So anyone can start a firm because I remember where I used to be when I was in, when I just graduated law school and I'm working, I'm like, dude, how are people who didn't go to law school, didn't even go to college making double me, double amount of what I'm making. And I don't see that changing anytime soon because the salary structure is, you know, is not going to get me to where I want to be. So I knew I have to be entrepreneurial. I have to start my own business to get to where I want to be. And once you do that, all sorts of doors that you never even knew existed are going to start opening up for you in terms of avenues to make more money. So that's where I'm trying to help uh, more people. I'm going to spread the the news to you uh, when that launches uh, for that's sure. That's awesome. I'll post it all over the place, dude. I appreciate it, brother. Yeah, it's so cool too. Cause like when you start to realize a little bit of success and you start to like do a few things, you just want to tell everybody. Yeah. Right. You want to pass it on to the younger guys or, or really anybody that you think it might help. Um, yeah. And so, so, sometimes I don't mean to cut you off, but I just, yeah. I just had a thought. Sometimes the instinct for some people is like, fuck that. Let me keep everything for myself. If I tell them, if I tell these lawyers, then they're going to get cases that I don't, but it's, that's so short-sighted and dumb oh, because yeah. a, you help them guess who they're going to come to for help. If they have a case that's too big for them, guess who they're going to send it to. Uh, yeah. And it's my pleasure to help them. Um, and so you got to have that, that big long-term picture with everything you do, including yeah. that. They'll come back to you, but it's also a different type of success, right? It's like, sure. um, it, it feels so good to help somebody else out knowing yeah. you're not going to get anything out of it. Yeah. Right. That's not a crazy feeling. You're just like, I, I mean, like you said, high school basketball or, or whatever, whatever level of basketball you want to teach, you know, you're probably not going to make millions of dollars being a, right. a, a basketball coach. Right. But what a great feeling when you get to like help that, right. that young kid that didn't know how to shoot or, you know, the, the, the kids that were having trouble in school, you kind of bring them together and make them into a team. Exactly. And, and you know what, that team. sounds hokey too. That's probably my first lesson when I, when the coaching start uh, program starts, mm-hmm. uh, which is typically the first lesson I, in most programs, which is like, when you stop focusing on making money and you change your focus to providing value to other people yeah. and you just work away on that providing value how do i help them the money then chases you it it's sounds crazy. corny it sounds like you know it's one of these um you know bullshit things that that coaches say uh but yeah. it's the truth it's the absolute truth because that's what people care about value people can see when you're just in it for a buck and you know you're done you, you get disconnected and so yeah. no yeah, i hope dime a dozen be, man those, those guys are a dime a dozen dime a dozen and those are the people who you know, I hope I could differentiate myself in my marketing or whatever and my post because like everyone knows, there's a million coaches now uh, who haven't done anything, who just coach as their, their main business is coaching. So yeah, oh, they're yeah. just coaching to coach, regurgitating the stuff that they've heard from, you know, people in the space like Andy and Ed, so to speak. Yeah. But, um, but, you know, I've done it and I want to share the lessons that I've learned and and not just coach to coach, but really coach to help, uh, yeah. help people get there in, in the podcast world, man, we get a lot of coaches. I get a lot of yeah, right? coaches that are, they teach, they, 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 they don't have necessarily a business that they learned to coach from, right? right. They just learned to be a coach. Right. And then uh, there's coaching for coaches. You so can people go coach take to coaching be to be a coach Right. <laughs> about, I don't even know what you would coach me on, but right. Uh, right. Right. But it's cool to hear your stories. Um, you know, you were actually built something and then you're going to use that information to teach new people that exactly. didn't know any better. Yeah, know for sure. Better. And again, you know, I think it doesn't have to be just lawyers because the entrepreneurial mindset and the things that it takes um, to get a successful business yes. um, applies across the board. So, you know, absolutely. I can, just your I, attention. Hopeful, yeah. all, all the stories you've told so far can apply to any single business, yeah, you know, for sure. preparation, attention to detail, focusing on one thing. You know, let's use a real estate example. Are you going to buy and sell every single real estate property in the world? No, you have to niche down and find the specific thing that you want to do. And then maybe the specific state you want to work in, the community you want to work in, right? Versus, um, you know, so so that your, your methods and your, your philosophy will, will work with anything. Yeah, I believe so. Um, I think you're probably the only lawyer I've ever met that has ever spoken like this. So yeah, that's what I'm saying. Refreshing. It's, that's what I you know, I tried to start this a little while ago with one of the top lawyers in the country, 
with with saying that to him, like nobody, there's nobody out there who now you'll see a lot more programs and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But um, nobody really speaks to the younger attorney, the kid in law school, the someone who's just been practicing four or five years from now. Typically, people want to um, you know market and get a lot of the people who have been doing it for 15, 20 years, the theory being they have more money to spend on your coaching, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because they have more success, so they'll be able to pay a higher ticket for it. Um, but yeah, so there, and by the way, that goes, that that's something where I encourage people to, to you know, get out in front of um, social media or whatever, because there's a, not a lot of, you know, normal people uh, like myself or like you who do this. And that's yeah. why I have success. When I go to court, you'd be surprised at some of the lawyers that you'll see, uh, you know, half their shirts sticking out, they're robots, they're not personal, no charisma, nothing like that. So if you have that, you're already separating yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, combining, for me, combining, you know, the legal world with the entrepreneurial world and being a normal person, I think is what- Isn't that me. weird that like, yes. you, yeah. you have to say that out loud, being a normal crazy. person. crazy. It's crazy, it's, but it's so true. It's so true. It's crazy. It puts you ahead so far. Like, and when you're young too, when you're when you're new at in any industry, you think all those guys at the top have it all together. Right. They are just so good at everything. Right. If you take that normal person attitude and you talk yeah. to people like a normal yeah. person would, yep. Um, yep. it brings so much more, I guess, business um, attention right. to you. Uh, and I think a lot of people, new people don't know that they don't realize that they think I have to talk like a robot. I have to dress a certain way. I have to speak a certain way. Um, and that's just not accurate. That's not true. There's a time, there's a time and place for everything. Like right now in my office, I'm wearing a t-shirt. This is one of our firm t-shirts, but you know, there'll be days where I'm in a t-shirt, even in the, in the summer when it's humid, I'll wear shorts and a backwards hat. And they're like, you know, I see some of the older guys in my office. We looking at me like, Oh, he's a lawyer, you know, maybe, but I'm not going to court like that, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and try so, that next time. See what happens. Right. Next time. There's always a suit uh, on my door if I need to change <laughs> into it. But you know, maybe maybe I'm not wearing a hat or or shorts or whatever. But if a client comes in and sees me wearing a t-shirt uh, and jeans, it's sort of relatable. Like I, my, I can talk to my lawyer. He's not you know always in a in a in a suit, um, you know, with his hair slicked back and his glasses on. You know, obviously there's value to presenting yourself as a professional. And I do that as well. But like I was saying, there's a time and a place for everything. And, you know, if you could relate to someone, whether it's a client, then theoretically, you're going to be able to relate to the jury down the road yeah. or the judge. Absolutely. So that interpersonal connection is probably the number one thing. And, and um, you know, it's that's huge. something that I think could differentiate you and me. Absolutely. It is huge. It's such a, it's so refreshing too, when you see the guy come at you and he's got a, you know, very nice fancy suit on and right. this dude's the, he's the guy, right? Everybody knows him as the guy. And he's like, Hey, how's it going? My name's Matt. And you're like, 100%, yep. Hey, yeah. Hey, how's it going? And then he yeah. talks to you like a normal person. And you're like, yeah. it brings, it brings the walls down big time. For sure. You know, I've like, settled oh, two cases crazy. recently. Yeah. I saw two cases recently where the defense attorney at, They've, they've been hard cases and the defense attorney has said, Matt, this, your case, you know, you know, you know, you can't win. I always think I could win, but, you know, um, but in deep down, I know this, I could lose on trial because you never know. Yeah. Um, but they've said, I really like you. I want to, I want you to do well on this. So I've got my insurance carrier to give this uh, offer and it's been way higher than I've thought. Um, and it's just because throughout the course of the litigation, I don't treat them like an enemy. We talk. I address them by their first name and my email signature. I'll have a little thing under like on top of my official, you know, email signature says, Matt, like speak to you later, Matt. And I think those things subconsciously and consciously go a long way because you're relating to them. So um, I find it crazy when I get these very formal emails from uh, other attorneys um, just without any personal connection. It's like, all right, you know, that's the way you want to be. We could, we can go that route, but um, you know, let's be professional human beings here. So yeah, it's a, there's it's, a lot of value to that. I think it's a, an incredibly outdated way of thinking too. Um, yeah. And I know when I do like a podcast interview, um, you'll come in contact with people like that and they can't bring that wall down. Right. It makes for a really difficult conversation to right. have with yeah. a, pro- a professional quote unquote yeah. um, when they just can't break that, you know, this is Absolutely. how I am. This is what I do. This is my, right. these are my yeah. rates. You know, I'm like, yep. okay, I just, we've all I seen those kind of podcasts, not from you, but we've seen, we've, we've yeah. listened to those podcasts. Where it's just oh, like, dude, uh, 
terrible. All right, man. <laughs> Matt, it's been awesome, dude. We're going to have to do this again. Yeah, for sure. PJ, thank you so much for taking the time, uh, letting me, you know, t- talk about myself. I usually like to be the one listening, but, um, you know, this was a change. This was awesome, man. I, I even learned a little bit more about myself. I have ideas here about what I want to do in the future just by talking. So uh, I appreciate the time, my man. That's perfect, man. And, dude, I really appreciate it. I seriously do. You, you should. It should be at least a book. Okay. okay. At least a book. Because the story is really interesting. Like, it really is. Like, the whole buildup and everything. And the, I mean, the whole thing is super interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think most people have their own version of that story and maybe not to the crazy levels of something. Tell the one you just told. <laughs> just do that you know, yeah let's do it uh <laughs> but there's value for everyone to share their story i think so um yeah. you know I'll, I'll tell it for sure one day absolutely it's really cool all right Matt, how can people get hold of you oh awesome thank you so on social you know we have our our at seagull law firm it's s-e-g-a-l sounds like the bird but it's spelled s-e-g-a-l law firm there's also my personal account so if you're interested in that coaching by any means um you know shoot me a dm um my Instagram handle, you could probably look me up at Matt Siegel, S-E-G-A-L. And then the actual handle is Matt underscore Siegel underscore E-S-Q, like Esquire for attorney. So look me up there, Siegel Law Firm. You could Google uh, it's Siegel-LawFirm.com. And, you know, if you ever need us for any reason, um, even if you just want to call and see um, if you might have a case, by all means, reach out to us. If there's any other way we can help you, we'd be happy to provide to provide that value for, for any reason. It doesn't even have to be legal. So that's, that's it, awesome. my man. Thank you so much. All right, Matt, here's the big question though, dude. Here is the big question we ask at the end of this podcast, yeah. at the end of every podcast. All right. So if you, Matt, we're land life, keep losing hats. They're everywhere, but yeah. Land I'll life. send you one of my hats too. We built, buy and sell dirt right there. Yep, there it is. Buy and sell dirt. Matt, if you could buy land anywhere in the world, where would it be and why? All right. So I know since you're a real estate guy, that, that, that question may be asked for business or investment purposes, but since I'm not in that world, I'm going to go with different, I'm going to go a different way. I'm going to say Hawaii, but I have to narrow it down. I guess I'll say Maui. Um, Just because, so I, I was there many years ago as a teenager. And I, what I remember similar to a good, closing argument see i'll tie that in there is not everything that happened i remember the feeling how i felt there and i just remember feeling like whoa there's there's a energy there's a vibe here that's that's different and it makes you feel like amazing so i'm gonna say that and and the other reason why is because i never got to go on my honeymoon which was a unbelievable trip planned to hawaii because that was supposed to happen like the week after covid exploded we never got to go so if I could buy property, I'm going to do it there so we could uh, we could fix that situation. So that, that's my if anybody's answer. listening to hook this guy up to uh, get him on a <laughs> yeah, free trip to Hawaii. Maui, let's do it. Let's go. We get a, get some one of these guys, one of these RTA guys jets or something to go out. Let's to go. go. Yeah, that'd be pretty awesome. sweet. Right on, Matt. Thank you so much, guys. Uh, thanks for joining us. And until next time, I'll see you in land life. PJ, you're the man. Thank you so much. Appreciate it.